for people that didn't listen to last week's episode, uh, now would be a good time to hit pause on this and go back. This is a continuation of our conversation last week on the struggles of modern boys and men. Last week, we spoke about accepting reality and why it can be so hard for people to wrap their head around this reality. And today we're going to talk about potential solutions. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend, Brad Stolberg. Brad, are you ready to dive into part two of our conversation on men and masculinity? I am. I'm glad that we had a little bit of time to rest and recharge um, because as y'all would have heard if you listened last week, uh, it's a really tricky topic and it, it, it can make my brain hurt to try to talk about it in a way that does the topic justice and um, supports it with the nuance that is so desperately lacking and so desperately called for. So um, yeah, I, I'm ready to dive in. Uh, on that note, I will say for people that didn't listen to last week's episode, uh, now would be a good time to hit pause on this and go back. This is a continuation of um, our conversation last week on the struggles of modern boys and men. And um, today we're going to dive into what we can do about those struggles. So last week we focused on just the first step of any problem. I think someone wrote a book that said you've got to accept reality <laughs> if you're going to work to make it better. Well, last week we spoke about accepting reality and why it can be so hard for people to wrap their head around this reality. And today we're going to talk about um, potential solutions. All right. Let's dive into the solutions. So I, I think one is, you know, I'm going to go where I, where I always do, but I think we have to look at, last week we identified the problem of, you know, men feeling essentially lost and having, you know, no filling a void of belonging, significance, meaning, purpose, et cetera. And then also something that we didn't talk about, but is also true, Again, from biology, what we know is on average, men tend to develop a little bit slower in terms of uh, cognition uh, than women. Um, it takes their prefrontal cortex a little bit longer, I believe, if you look at the science and data, to uh, kind of catch up. That's why there's often a maturity gap uh, between men and women. So keeping those two thoughts in mind, one thing that I think is really important here is to give or provide avenues for men to get significance and status growing up through middle school, junior high, and high school that keeps them in the educational game. And I think this is one spot where sport is so important because, again, on average, if you look at interest levels in sport, again, on average, men tend to have a slightly higher uh, interest level in, in various sports. So I think allowing and providing for that avenue is important. And I think one place where we've gone very wrong about this in sport is we've turned sport into kind of a survival of the fittest in terms of preparing for either that college scholarship or that professional deal where it's like you just chase that outcome. And by doing so, we've actually hurt the men and girls, well, boys and girls, but a lot on the boys' side, we've hurt the participation in sport 
where it's needed most, which is often in the low socioeconomic statuses, uh, which have to face like struggles that you or I probably didn't. Um, and tend in that, that those people tend to have higher dropout rates in school and, and such. And sport allows them to keep it or to keep them in the game. But because we've kind of professionalized youth sports and made it all about getting to the next level, what happens is now there's like pay to play in terms of youth and high school sports. There's like a increased push to select or travel teams instead of recreational or local teams, which again, increases costs, decreases the amount of people we can keep in it. So I think one of the solutions in my mind is we need to have a more robust youth, junior high, high school sporting, and even college uh, sports culture that promotes participation and keeping people in that pipeline for as long as you can. Because I know from personal experience, often if you keep people in that pipeline, eventually the academic interest will catch up and you've kept them in the pipeline and eligible until that academic interest like catches up maturity was. All right, let me let me take us back for a minute, Steve. I was hoping that I could rescue us before you immediately took us into sport. So while I, think I agree, sports is great. Well, I well I agree with everything that you said, and I, I had the feeling that you were going to go there. Um, I didn't know you'd go there right away. So yes, sports are great, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about that. Let me name before that the most radical proposal that Richard Reeves, author of Boys and Men, the book that this conversation is is really building off of, proposes. And I don't think we should discuss it too much because it's so far out of our wheelhouse and it's pretty radical. And I'd rather just discuss things that are more likely um, that listeners can act on like themselves in their own community. But I do think naming this radical thing helps set up the rest of the conversation. So it's pretty clear that on average... Young boys' prefrontal cortex runs about a year to two years behind that of their female counterparts. And young boys hit puberty about a year to two years later than that of their female counterparts. Again, there are individual differences. We're talking about averages here. What Richard Reeves proposes is that we basically redshirt boys in school so that if the traditional average girl starts kindergarten between the age of five and six, we have the traditional boys start kindergarten between the age of six and seven. Reeves argues that from a brain development standpoint, this would basically put them on par with each other. Now, the immediate counter argument to that is there's already a fair amount of harassment in school towards young girls and would having boys that are even further developmentally along just add to this problem. And what Richard Reeves addresses that by saying two things. Number one is, if anything, this policy would have it so that boys and girls start puberty at the same time. So it would actually kind of like equalize that playing field. And the second thing that Richard Reeves would say is that there have been a few very small natural experiments where this happens, meaning you can't ethically do this, but there are times when historical events lead to this. So school districts siphoning off small crises in community that require a small school to shut down and therefore kids don't start until six months later, what have you. And in these instances, not only have there not been increased rates of harassment towards young girls, but the boys fare much better. And, um, it seems to work out pretty well. 
These are small instances, and it's radical because I don't think that we're anywhere near saying that, hey, boys should start school later. However, I didn't know this. Again, I found this book mind-blowing. Reeves cites data that amongst the top half a percent percent far more elite than you and I will ever be, Steve, there is a trend among parents of boys to basically hold their kids back, even if their kids are doing fine in kindergarten or in preschool, excuse me, to start them a year late. So the people that probably need it the least, those in the upper, upper tier of socioeconomic status with all the resources, their parents are already doing this because they sense it's good. So Richard Reeves says, if this is already happening, why don't we make it not just something that elite people choose to do, but why don't we just make it a norm? And um, I don't think that like any of our listeners, unless you're a superintendent or like the, the, the head of the education department are going to be able to take this on. But before we dive into any other proposals, I think it's worth talking about that radical one. Yeah, absolutely. So two things on this. First is the top 1% or half a percent that are already doing that. That is mostly driven from two things. Is One, it's over-involved parents who believe that setting their kid back will allow them to grow and dominate in sports more so. And then the second is what I'd call the Gladwell outliers effect, which in outliers... Gladwell wrote about, hey, kids who were born, I think it was like January 1st or whatever, did better in hockey and other things because they got better coaching. Early. Essentially, they were the oldest kids who developed a little bit more. So they got into better coaching, better schools, et cetera, and were able to hold that advantage. I think, well, there's some truth in niche areas. I'm not sure. In fact, I don't think the data is there to support that it actually helps over the long term, except in like niche sports like hockey or what have you that are um, that are essentially, you know, you're self-selected early on into this like competitive pathway. Um, so that's that's one thing. The other part of this that I, I actually disagree with Reeves here. And that's why I start with sports, because I think this gets at things backwards. I think if we looked at a, a big policy like this, what you're most likely going to have is a lot of unintended consequences that you can't foresee, meaning status differentials, meaning imprinting, um, imprinting like that there is a gender differentiation when you're the eight-year-old that is surrounded by a bunch of seven-year-old girls or what have you. Um that in that imprints like this academic difference or this development difference um, and almost can kind of like become a self-fulfilling prophecy if this is across everyone. I think why you don't see this in small small scales is because it's like a very controlled small thing that like is everyone isn't tied to. So I think that's number one. Wait, wait, let me interject then on number one because I would argue that we do this in other realms. Like... Many school districts won't allow girls to play varsity football because they say, well, you'd get hurt. Well, why? Because boys are so much more powerful at that age. Well, why? Because of biology. So how is that any different than telling a boy, yeah, you're a year younger than the girls in your class? Well, why? Because girls' brains develop at different rates. Because, well, why? Because biology. Because you're talking about a handful of people who want to play women or girls, fo- uh, like boys football. 
But even if it was all girls that wanted to, would it change it? Like we do. Absolutely. Because if it was all girls, what we would do is we'd have a separate women's football team. Right. But we're not going to separate biology or in some like, but I guess what I'm, do you see what I'm saying? Like we do make differences based on biological differences where, where boys and girls aren't equal and they just kind of get normalized and often they're for bad reason, but sometimes they're for good reason. In the case of contact sports, I think it's for safety. So couldn't you argue that this is like for intellectual safety? And it's not saying that boys are dumber. It's just saying that they develop at a different rate. Like Reeves Reeves has this data. By age 25, boys and girls are on par in terms of ability to succeed intellectually. No, we understand that. I just think that what you're getting at is that this is a very, I think this is the argument that held back women for a while, actually, is when women were told you're not strong enough, you don't have the capacity to do this, et cetera. What it does is it creates this, this kind of experience that needed to be broken in sport. For example, you saw this in the marathon and other things. But I disagree because it was false because women were often told that when it wasn't true. And it is true that men develop. And listen, I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Like I said, this is a radical policy None of our listeners are going to be able to promote it. I am a summer birthday. I was the youngest kid in my class, and I did fine throughout school. Uh, I probably would have played college basketball if I got held back, but my parents messed that one up, or maybe they did it right. I'm just kidding. But my point isn't like to be a champion of this. I just sometimes we dismiss radical policies, and and I just want to make sure that we're really like it's not. I, maybe it's not that radical. So I, I, yeah, I get it, but I just think it's, I just don't think it's, I think it's getting at, again, there are some differentials on average on like the developmental of some cognitive abilities. Most of it's tied to, you know, prefrontal cortex developing and emotional maturity developing, but there's also like some data on different cognitive abilities that are more advanced in boys than girls. The common example is there's no difference. If anything, boys score a little bit higher on standardized tests than girls, although that difference has almost disappeared. So there's basically no gap on standardized testing, but there's a huge achievement gap in school. And that is because where boys develop less, uh, less quickly or, 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 or on a later curve than girls is around like self-regulation. Uh, this is why young boys do stupid shit more than young girls. Uh, it is not because boys are inferior. It's because their prefrontal cortex just doesn't develop as fast. Right. So I think what we're getting at is like you'd almost have to have a thing where instead of redshirting boys, it's like identifying in different areas where they're like self and such as self-regulation where you're behind and like new doing the nuance there, like we do in sport. And I just don't think that's realistic because I think if you just do a, the blanket, Hey, we're going to redshirt all boys. I do think there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences on this side where you're not actually addressing the problem. Like the problem to me, isn't like, Hey, boys have less self-regulation so they don't succeed in the right areas or what have you. I think more of it is the problem be- the problem if we're looking at boys and success in this is that boys interests are often different and the things that they prioritize are often different in those early years, which is like, you have to provide them outlets for how to keep them 
essentially engaged and interested until like they catch up into terms of like discipline, understanding, et cetera. Because if we look at, again, on average, like one of the reason women succeed or girls succeed in schooling environments is often because what, and Reese points this out, what we've created school for, which is like being conscientious, like essentially doing the thing that you're asked in a more perfect way, like that suits women's and girls' like skill sets more than boys as a development. And I guess what I'm arguing is, yeah, we get about a year that might change that a little bit. But I think the other part of the argument is like school was created in the, or not created, but our modern school system was kind of developed for a 1940s, 50s culture of manufacturing and like sitting there doing repetitive tasks. I think there's a way to say, hey, let's reimagine school a little bit to actually address why boys tend to fall a little bit behind than just say, hey, let's redshirt and keep the same system. Yeah. And I want to, and I, and I want to clarify something because I know, um, like it's not, it's not so much that the girls are better at doing things that they're asked because that you could say is like what feminism aimed to overcame. It's just simply that girls are more mature than boys when they are young. Uh, and that's maturity is different than intellect. So if we talk about maturity as self-regulation, um, ability to listen, um, self-discipline, ability to think ahead, on average, because we're talking about averages here, girls' brains are better able to do that at every age than boys up until you hit between 23 and 25. Um, okay, I, I'll just say one more thing, and then we can we can stop with this radical proposal because I, I don't know where I stand on it. I agree there would be all kinds of unintended consequences. Um, but I think it's interesting in... in I guess the argument in favor of it is that even though the system was designed by men, so men can blame themselves, they pretty much designed like a pretty unequal education system that favors girls. So I guess what you're maybe saying is one thing to do is, so so here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to go back to the fifties and just like tell girls that they can't succeed. That's off the table. So we can do two things. We can operate within the current system and consider redshirting boys, or we can like change the system and change what we evaluate young kids on and change how we keep kids in the game. And that's the thread that we're going to pull on now. I, I just want to make be clear on this so I can get, you know, make sure that we're not stepping on toes. Is there's all sorts of data that shows, for example, co- comparing SAT scores of men versus women and then comparing GPAs in college women tend to have higher college GPAs among people with similar SAT scores. So you're using that SAT as a, as the, uh, as the kind of indicator of intelligence or whatever have you. Um, and the reason that most of the studies have shown that is because women tend to have higher levels of conscientiousness at that age. So I think, and that's where we're getting into this is I think that that conscientiousness in, in men is a little bit, again, lower in certain areas of conscientiousness as we come along. Um, But to me, it's like changing the system or the things that we emphasize to allow men to kind of, or boys to kind of stay in it until that catches up 
is a way, and that's why I started with this sports, because if we looked at conscientiousness in the classroom, boys probably score pretty low when you're 16. If we looked at it in the weight room or out on the running or track, like they do better. If you're interested in that, you do much, you do much better. Yeah. And I think some of this is cultural too. I want to be careful because again, like, you know, go back if you didn't and listen to last week's episode, these are always biological and cultural. Someone might argue that, well, the reason women are more conscientiousness is because of a patriarchy that told women that they need to listen to men. And the reason that men are less conscientiousness is because boys will be boys, go goof off and do whatever you want to do. And that's a valid argument, and there's probably some truth, but is the effect size the whole thing because of that? No, absolutely not. Yep, absolutely. I think that's a good point. Okay, so we're not going to hold boys back in in our world, at least not starting tomorrow. We're not going to redshirt all boys. Um, I completely agree with Steve. I think that one thing that can help, probably the biggest thing that can help is de-industrializing sports so that you don't have to pay gobs of money and have two parents, neither of whom have real jobs to drive the kids to all the sporting events. Um, it just makes no sense. The direction that sports are going in like this crazy money-based program. Uh, I think organized sports should be more accessible to everyone. And I think that any kind of school system that is interested in addressing some of these gaps between boys and girls that we talked about last week should prioritize having highly accessible sports. And the other thing I should say is it's, it's, I know I love sports. So yes, we're going to talk about it. And yes, that matters a lot, but I think it's also other avenues that keep people engaged. The Dungeons and Dragons club. club, Yeah. That's, you know, shop class, it's welding, it's future farmers of America. And this applies to everybody. But I think the more things that you have in that, um, I think it helps everybody. But I think particularly some of those avenues um, allow uh, boys to keep in, keep in the system longer. Okay, so we've addressed the school. Now let's get up and let's start to talk about uh, grown grown men in, in the challenges that they're facing. And, um, well, you step back and I think two big things are happening right now that are changing things for men really fast. The first is that the economy is shifting away from tasks that men are traditionally really good at. So really physical tasks that rely on a lot of physical strength, those have generally been replaced by machines and automation. And the kind of cognitive intellectual tasks that men have been really good at are also being replaced by automation. I'm thinking the STEM jobs. At the same time, so that's one big driver. At the same time, Men are now, for the first time, competing with women who have their own opportunity and skin in the game. And like we said, they're overlapping bell curves. So just just because, you know, maybe on average or 70% of men are better at STEM-type things just based on their inborn temperament, well, now those 30% of women that were told you can't do this are being told you can and you should do this. And that is a great, great thing. So 
I think that the double whammy of jobs that men are traditionally good at are going the way of machines and men needing to compete with women on an equal playing field for the first time, which is a good thing for, for, for society, no doubt about it. But I think those two things have come together to have men that are feeling like they're falling behind. And then women tend to derive their sources of identity from more pursuits than their work. So yes, women derive identity from their work, but on average, women also derive identity from being a mom, from being a member of the community, uh, from being a friend, from being a sister, from being a daughter, from being in the choir. Whereas men culturally have been told that their primary identity is based on what they do. So there's these fascinating surveys where they ask people like for sources of meaning and fulfillment in their life in men are astoundingly more likely to say work and like leave off family. Whereas women might say work, but they might also list all these other things. And I think that that is a result of like the old school patriarchy in a way that has really disserviced men because women, they can get tons of identity and self-respect from being involved in the community and being a parent. Whereas for a guy, like a stay at home dad, okay. Like you're kind of seen as a failure, which is just stupid. Um, so I think that that is, um, that's, that, that to me is the biggest driver is like, we, we, we need to redefine what it means to have a positive masculinity in the 21st century. And it yeah, can't I, just be about working and providing. Yeah. I mean, what you're getting at there is what we talked about last time, which is that we've got a, for men, we've got a 1950s version of masculinity or like our master narrative is stuck there, which is like my entire self-worth is based on working a job and working hard at it and providing. And that's where my source of meaning comes from. And what we know, particularly from, um, what is it? Self-complexity theory and psychology is that when you are narrow and your sources of identity and, and self and meaning come from one thing, that means you're very fragile. Because if that one thing goes away, it's not like I can reaffirm myself and say, hey, you know, maybe I got laid off, but I'm a great dad and like my friends love me and I get some sources of meaning from this hobby or project I do or this side gig or what have you. It's literally that you are you feel like a failure because the one thing you wrapped your identity around is gone. Well, meanwhile, again, on average, women tend to have more self-complexity. Men tend to have less. So I think you're spot on. And and, and I I think we need to figure out how to provide and shift that, that narrative around what's it mean to be a man where it becomes more of a complex man than we'll call it the, I don't know, for us, the 1990s version of Al Bundy, who essentially, you know, drinks beer and works at a shoe store and, and that's it. Yeah. Can we, if we're going to talk about um, this like notion of being a dad, cause we're going to get into parenting um, a mind blowing fact from the book of boys and men by Richard Reeves that um, I like really dug deep on the data and it, it's just true. So the gender gap that we often hear about in pay exists in the top 1% of jobs. So if you're going to be the CEO or the COO of a huge company, pay is, there's inequality in pay towards women and that should be fixed. For the other 
there is no gender gap. There is a parenting gap. And it just so happens that most women do the stay at home or do the double work of parenting. We know this because of fascinating studies that look at lesbian couples and gay couples. And what they find is that it has nothing to do with the gender of the person. It has to do with who raises the kid or in the case of lesbian couples, who carries the kid. And when lesbian couples is often, or sometimes I guess is the case, if they have more than one kid, each member of the couple will choose to carry one of the kids. And you see their careers stunt at that point, but they're both women. So it's not about the fact that they're women. It's about the fact that they're doing the predominant caring and parenting. I think that this can hurt men because men like they don't feel like it's okay to stay home and be a dad. Society doesn't give paternity leave. Good companies do. But again, then you're talking like the elite companies. And even then it's almost never the same as maternity leave. So on the one hand, I think women this is this is just a cultural thing that messes everyone up. Many women get disserviced because they get behind in their career because society expects them to be the default parent. And many men get messed up because society says that they can't be the default parent. And I think a big part of a positive masculinity is really like owning and embracing being an active and involved dad. And especially if the AI bots are going to be doing more and more of the work that men are normally good at and women are going to be the primary breadwinners. That's great. Like we shouldn't like, we shouldn't put false constraints on that. What we should say is wonderful. Women are going to go kick ass in the work world and men, y'all got to like learn how to be dads and get your identity from being a dad. Yeah. I mean, it just comes down to me as like diversifying yourself and sources of meaning. And one of the ways that is, readily available for many adult men is fatherhood and and for too long what we've kind of done is like minimize that effect and only kind of narrowly defined what it means to be a father and given these narrow things again in this case maybe sports has backfired like what's your role as a dad be the coach essentially right and i think that's valuable but like we need to be able to ha- expand that kind of definition of what it means to be a father to include, you know, everything. And it, it and I, I have some personal experience on this that I'm I'm willing to share here. Um, my wife really wanted to have kids, and I'm so grateful that we do. And I am very much and was even more so work focused. And as a part of our communication process and deciding to have two kids and how we got there, there was like really clear communication that you're going to be primary parent for the kids because I want to put my work first. And while that has played out to some extent, it's not nearly to the extent that either of us thought. So Caitlin is already back at work, probably faster than we both thought wanting to work. And I am actively scaling down on the things that I do for work because I want to be more involved as a dad. And I think that that's been so healthy for me because now I just like, I derive so much identity. I would used to say, if you took away all of my writing and coaching and like being a somewhat like public thinker in the world, it'd be devastating. And now if you were to do it, 
I'm sure I wouldn't like it, but there's a part of me that's like, that would be lovely. Um, but I wouldn't have had that experience had I not now derived more and more of my identity from being a dad. And being a dad doesn't just mean like these kids have my DNA and I eat dinner with them and then that's it. It means like schlepping their asses to school, dealing with them when they mat down, coaching their sporting events, doing art with them. Um, and it's the stuff that like that, that at first I wasn't thrilled about, but now I'm so happy. And I, and part of the reason I wasn't thrilled, it's not clearly I like it because now I'm happy. It's simply that like society has told us like, oh, you know, and even, even woke millennials like you and I, Steve, there's just so much cultural stuff there, like kind of not like there's not a culture around being a dad in the same way that there is mom. And I think that some people like, so our friend Ryan Holiday, he has a book coming out called The Daily Dad, and he's got a whole newsletter and stuff. I actually don't read that newsletter. I'm sure it's great because most of Ryan's stuff is. I think that we're starting to see more people be like, hey, like being a dad is legit and cool and fun and hard and can be a source of identity. But it's certainly decades, if not centuries behind that of being a mom. So there's and I think that happened because of social and historical reasons. Right. So what I think I hear you saying is think of it like this through until, I don't know, the 1960s, 70s. You know, I don't have any data on this, so I'm kind of conjecturing on the fly here. But women were forced essentially to have identity around being a mom and taking care of the home. And what we've successfully done, not all the way, but to a degree, successfully done is expanded women's identities and sense of self to allow them to include work if they want to, or hobbies, or like mastery on different things and all that that good stuff on men. What we need is like similar revolution on, on for decades, century millennia, men have kind of been taught, told to kind of define on this sense of self around their work. And as that work as provider and protector or what have you. And what we need is a similar expansion model is yes, you can continue to derive some of your sense of self and meaning from your work, but we need to expand off of that. And I think men in particular are pretty susceptible to this for a couple of reasons. Is a we tend to we tend to have fewer friends as we age. Uh, men are just worse at it, and because of that, like often we don't have as many like hobbies and things that we do as a community. Um, around that where we can't derive that sense of, of self from that as well. And what we need to do societally is like provide those avenues so that we can do that. One of the simplest ways is fatherhood. But like anything, if, if your sole identity was only fatherhood, it would probably not be the best either. So we need to like expand not only fatherhood, but also like men's sense of communities and doing stuff uh, together again. Yeah. And I think that what we're getting at is um, the ultimate both and, which is hold that there are uh, very real temperamental differences for the average man and woman while realizing that at the individual level, people are unique. And it can be a mixture of playing into these temperamental differences where they make sense, but also embracing your uniqueness and having like a more fluid definition of, of masculinity while not throwing the baby out with the bathwater on some of those ingrained um, temperamental things. So 
on those ingrained temperamental things, back to sports. I think that um, while women are really good at maintaining relationships and friendships and having book clubs and all sorts of things, um, men struggle with this. I think the social part is men just aren't as vulnerable as women. And we know that friendships and communities are formed through vulnerability. And I don't think there's anything completely biological. I mean, maybe you could argue that we evolved to be less vulnerable because when looking for a mate, you don't want to show weakness. But if that's the case, then that's an evolutionary mismatch today. And we should work on um, helping men be more vulnerable so that they can grow those connections. That's like the shift. But then playing to temperaments is we should probably, as men, like seek out, you know, my, my community's in the gym and that's okay. And that shouldn't be labeled toxic masculinity. Absolutely. I mean, I think, again, it comes to the kind of professionalism of sport where it become this path to, you know, college, professional, what have you. And what happens once that path is gone, you just say, oh, whatever, I'm going to move on. And what we need is like places like we know, again, on average, um, men tend to go towards create. And there's actually some data on this is men tend to make friends and create hot create community around like hobbies and pursuits um much more so so we need to not only growing up through school but also as we get into adults is provide hobbies and places where men can create that community and connection and i think one of those is like you said gems running clubs whatever it is you know your kickball team whatever it is uh that that can kind of fill that gap Okay. I think something else for adults would be more public health investment and um, issues that impact men at greater proportion. So in particular, deaths of despair and the coronavirus. Um, as I said, I think that we can just do a thought experiment and imagine that COVID killed twice as many women as men, or that most, the vast majority of deaths of despair were amongst women, not men. Um, they'd likely be getting more public health attention, I would imagine, or at least more cultural attention, I should say, probably more accurately. And um, I think there it's just overcoming this inclination to be like, women were discriminated for so long. So how can we possibly, like, how can gender inequality possibly run in both ways? Because for the longest time, it only ran in one way, but now it runs in both ways. And just like we should address gender inequality when it runs in the direction of um, favoring men or paying more attention to men than women, we should address it the other way too. This isn't either or, it's both and. Um, so there are all sorts of task force for women's health, um, but we don't necessarily have that for men's health. We have women's studies, but we don't have men's studies. Now this isn't like, I mean, hopefully longtime listeners know us well enough, but if you're new, I'm not suggesting like men's rights bullshit groups to go back to the fifties. I'm discussing like, uh, a, a intellectual field that tackles these issues and tries to work towards a positive masculinity. So it's not Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. And I think, you know, I'm going to use an example that is a little off here, but I think it gets at this is that let's take the, the rise in, uh, you know, the recent couple decades of of older men using testosterone replacement therapy. And what that gets at to me is that men typically define themselves in a narrow 
view of like, we'll call it old school masculinity that is often centered around like toughness, aggressiveness, size, what have you. And what that does is as you age, you kind of are like, oh crap, I'm losing this part of me. So I'm going to get on the sauce so that I can, when I'm six years old, I can like look buff and feel manly. And I think that gets at this like cultural problem where if you look at biologically, what happens is yes, our testosterone goes down as we age. But one of the reasons that occurs, and it occurs more in men with family, especially with girls, is our testosterone drops in gr- when we have the more, more girls we have as a family. If we have children, the more our testosterone tends to drop. Why? Because we're, our body is kind of realizing, oh, we need to go into nurture mode more than like the hyper aggressive to find our mate mode. Um, so there's this like interesting biological thing that that kind of occurs to kind of shift us into like emphasizing different things. Again, slightly nudging. It's not deterministic. But culturally, we kind of go against that and hold on to our, our testosterone, you know, replacement because like I think part of it is because like so much of our sense of self and worth for men is tied to an uh, old school definition of masculinity that centers around you know, and we bashed, we bashed the left enough in the last episode. So here I think we can bash the right a little bit or a lot bit for just perpetuating this. You know, this is the whole, like men are spending too much time with girls. And because now girls play sports and girls are in the workplace, China's army is going to destroy us because we have weak men. I mean, just like the most absurdist remarks, um, that are not based in a kernel of truth, or maybe the kernel of truth is that to Steve's point, like over time, the more, and particularly the men that have a lot of women around their testosterone goes down, but that's actually an adaptive response. So rather than fight against it and try to stay aggressive and end up like with a divorce because you're a douchebag. Um, but that's what your role models are telling you to do. (laughs) Like, right. I mean, think about it. That's Andrew Tate to a T. Um, it would be good to have, other positive views of masculine role models. And you could argue that Jordan Peterson kind of fills this because like, he's not a muscle head, but um, I'm going to quote my friend Ezra Klein. If you watch Jordan Peterson, he's always like angry. Like when he talks and he'll cry and he'll show vulnerability and all that. And I think that's good. And I think that's why a lot of men like him, but he's like a clenched fist when he's talking, just like waiting to explode. Like there's always this grievance there. And I think that to me, that clenched fist is like holding on to the good old days. And I think that what a positive masculinity needs to do is loosen that fist and say the good old days weren't actually that good because all of our wives, daughters, and sisters were being discriminated against. The current days aren't good because we're getting left behind. So how can we build a masculinity that is um, that is positive and productive, that tells the far crazies on the left that biology actually matters that tells the far crazies on the right that biology isn't destiny and the only thing and really build something that is sustainable and productive for men in society. And like, to me, that's the goal. That's why we're having this conversation. Maybe I need to start posting pictures of my deadlift along with my, uh, my vulnerable quotes on Instagram. I don't know, Steve. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's just expanding Again, it gets back to expanding, and I'm going to give myself a plug here because this is what I try to do with Do Hard Things is expanding our, and Do Hard Things, I try to expand our view of toughness 
and like update it for the 21st century and be like, hey, yeah, I get it. Like sometimes putting your head down and pushing is like tough and the right thing. But if that's the only tool you have in the toolbox, like that's not tough. You're screwed. Right. We need to expand it. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what we're talking about, like masculinity and manliness. And again, let me go back way back to my comfort zone here. But I think we should consider things like if you're going to the gym, manly and tough, whatever. Great. Like if that's get you get your fulfilling. But it's also the same if you go out and you wear tiny split shorts and are hammering up a hill sprinting. Because, like, that's really freaking tough to do. And if you're some, I don't know, 45-year-old dude doing that, great. Or at the same thing, if you're trying to, we'll expand it even further, if you're trying to master, I don't know, if you're a male trying to master ballet or something that is, you know, gets hated on in certain sectors, like, that's awesome. You're mastering something that is incredibly difficult. Like, that's, quote-unquote, manly to do. And I think that's where it's like we need to expand away from the 1950s version and instead say that, yes, there's some biological, you know, biases that we have and like we're going to push in certain fields or certain areas, but we need to expand it from like these narrow fields to, again, mastering, taking on challenges, like being there, fatherhood, like, we get it, you're stoic, but stoic in a more productive way where instead of ignoring and pushing away your feelings, your stoic means like you're keeping your mind steady while you're Yeah, I, exactly. Your I was going to be like, I was thinking like strength, stability, and equanimity, but like a warm strength and a warm equanimity. Like yes. to me, that is like, well, cause you know, so right now if my own masculinity is around, um, being a dad, my productivity is a writer and coach and then um, physicality, like a strength athlete. Well, the latter part of that is for sure going to go away over time, but I still think I can embody that like innate drive for strength in myself, but do it in a way that is strength through the challenging weather and life, but not repressing, but like being both warm and equanimous at the same time. Like my role model, older men are all like, you know, former Jew, Jewish guys that converted to Buddhism and are now like the American, the, the teachers that brought Buddhism to the West. Cause they're all like these very strong, stable oasis type people. But at the same time, they're really warm. Um, but they're not like hopped up on steroids at age 75, trying to be strong and, you know, pounding red dogs. Is that the beer? Mad dog, red dog. I don't even know. Not a man. <laughs> there you go. But I think it is, it is that, that it's like holding that warmth and equanimity, that ability to kind of put your head down and pause. It's those sort of holding those two things at once. And again, I'll come back to you. It's understanding that Arnold Schwarzenegger is whatever tough and manly, but also like, you know, Elliot Kipchoge is right. Or whoever it is that you want to use your, your example there instead of having this kind of like narrow definition of masculinity. Because I think when we do that, what we do is not only for men allow you to have more outlets, but for boys, what we do is we have more like coming back to that role models where we talked about being able to see teachers or nurses or what have you. I think you see you have more models of what positive masculinity can be 
which could, you know, then like you're expanding their potential and future selves, which gives them more avenues where they feel like, oh, I can have significance, you know, meaning mastery, make progress versus only seeing the narrow world of, oh, if I can't do this, whatever job in and maybe narrowly in sport or whatever, some sort of physical job or have my gun and shoot things, whatever your thing is like <clears throat> that just leads to feeling insignificant and lost because there's only like one or two paths to go down. Yeah. And I actually think it's funny you mentioned him. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger is like a really good example of someone that is doing this pretty well in expanding their identity. Absolutely. Um, I was just talking with my wife, like, I mean, in terms of like celebrity status, because I was sharing with Caitlin, like that we're going to be taking on this issue again this week in the podcast. And is he perfect? No, but like, I give me Arnold Schwarzenegger is the model of masculinity um, right now. Someone that's changed his mind in the public, someone that's spoken out against like hate in, in assault rifles and more like traditional masculinity while at the same time is probably the strongest 70 year old person there is. Um, yeah, like I'll take that any day over the, the Andrew Tates and the, the Jordan Petersons of, of the world. But I think that Arnold is kind of proving our point. Cause that's someone that was like really narrowly defined as masculine because of the amount of um, muscle 99% of which was probably heavily assisted, um, but then expanded from that yes. and complexified his identity and became a comedian and a governor and um, a grandfather and is now like this warm kind of like goofy dad temperament. And he seems to be thriving and doing well. I actually know someone that works closely with him and Arnold's like having the best time of his life. And he's someone that you'd think would be like buried in a hole of wanting to go back to the seventies, but he expanded. So I think that's what we're arguing for is like a, you know, be like Arnold, an expansive definition of masculinity where you don't leave the Terminator stuff behind if that's who you are, but you do leave some of it behind and you evolve and you grow and you broaden what that means to you. I think it's spot on. Be more like Arnold. There we are. More like Arnold, less like Andrew Tate. But I, 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 I and I, I think that, you know, I'm glad we kind of ended up here because, again, it's hard if we ask someone on the other side of this kind of thing or the other side of this argument on masculinity, like, you can't really argue against Arnold as being masculine. Right. Just saying. Yeah. So there you have it. Um, okay. I think this feels like a good place to, to wrap up. If you enjoyed this conversation and you enjoy the podcast as a whole, please share it with your friends and your family and your colleagues. Um, we're looking to go into a growth phase where um, we just want to reach more listeners and invite more people into these conversations because we think that they're important. If you have any feedback, uh, let us know. You can contact us via the website in our show notes. And with that, we'll see you next week. Thanks.